Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Landscape Nerd Podcast. My name is Macy, and I am your host. Today's episode is going to be an interview. I have done a lot of these recently as people have reached out, and I've reached out to others to just grow and communicate. We'll be looking at how professionals in different disciplines interact with landscape and where does it fall on their radar which I think is something we need to know as a profession ourselves so we can start to gauge how we collaborate with others if we can collaborate with others and what are the easiest avenues to collaborate I think it'll be fun so today's episode we are going to interview an aquatic ecologist this is my friend Zach we met in undergrad at Hiram College. We were both in a stream ecology lab together. We've stayed in touch and we both follow each other's works. And so it's just a great resource to have to launch this next portion of the podcast. So should I, should I introduce myself then? Please do. Yeah. Um, so hello, my name is Zach Nemec and I'm a watershed project scientist at Clemson University. Um, prior to this, I've done a lot of research in uh, aquatic ecosystems throughout the United States. Uh, I've done, you know, vernal pools, which are a type of wetland in Ohio, and I've done uh, a lot of stream work down in the Southwest, specifically in Arizona. Um, so I guess that's where I fall under. I, I too wonder where I'm at in regards to what field. Um, and so I would say aquatic ecology um, is kind of where or what I study. Um, but right now, uh, I do a lot of public outreach and education through a public program uh, that gets people outdoors and understanding their waterways better by looking at a couple characteristics, both with chemical bacteria and also macroinvertebrates, which are kind of the, the insects, bugs, creepy crawly things that live uh, in your stream. And we actually did some of that today, which was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I think that thing, it's you could you know, look at aquatic ecosystems for many ways. Uh, it's all kind of intertwined with us humans because we use water in some shape or form. <laughs> I think that you did that really well. I'm like, you had the spiel, like, perfect. Yeah, I, I definitely had to, uh, over the years, pick up, um, you know, like, kind of make that elevator pitch or that introduction um, before I was just like, I don't, you know, I would go too much into the weeds and details. And you have to kind of go to that broader level for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. So how do you deal with, um, if you're dealing with the public, explaining what you do and that, and getting them engaged, you know, especially because you are in, you as a scientist are in the weeds with all the details and understanding all the complexities, but when relaying that to the public, how do you do that? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question because yeah, there's definitely, and right now the program I run is a is a quote citizen science program and that kind of you know there's some complexities behind that term um I could go further in depth with as much um, as you want <laughs> yeah but but basically I think it's trying to um loop the general public into data collection um and that you know you don't have to have a certain degree or you don't have to have a certain background or you don't have to be someone who like hikes or fish to actually collect water data. Um, and, you know, citizen science is just a very interesting concept. You know, there's all different kinds of programs ranging from collecting, um, you know, rain gauge data to watching birds to, I think there's stuff with, um, you know, space and medicine. Um, it, it runs this, you know, whole, you know, spectrum in regards to these different disciplines and not just you know, environmental science or, or ecology, but also these other different disciplines of, you know, people kind of using the public to understand and collect this data and also people using that data to do different things, whether it's like answering a question or just kind of monitoring. So that's been a very interesting thing about, I guess, engaging public is through these, these programs that are, you know, not only just statewide um, in regards to the program I, I work with, but also there's nationwide programs and international programs. But yeah, too, it's just like coming into this and also just understanding it's just like not only regular science, but also this citizen science just has barriers. And so we try to make it accessible for everyone, but it's, you know, it's hard in regards to, you know, do you have time to do this? Do you have you know, can you take time off to attend a workshop? And so that's something I always try to think about is, is it truly accessible to everyone? But yeah, <laughs> but that's yeah. definitely one, yeah, but that's definitely one way to engage. And 
and yeah, I talk about this a lot with my partner um, because they are a writer and two where she had a reading this Saturday and it was for, I guess, Earth Week or um, Earth Day and their specialty is fiction. And so that was kind of interesting too about like how does, you know, how you can incorporate like writing or the field of, of literary um, fiction or nonfiction and into, I guess, the sciences um, which is a whole nother thing. So it's, yeah, there's definitely opportunities to go a- across different disciplines is I guess another, um, like collaborating with, you know, writers or artists, visual artists um, is a way to, I guess, you know, get information or I guess, you know, like I agree with you, like people in our field are very kind of just speaking to themselves. They're not really yeah. kind of reaching out to the masses. And so I think that's definitely a second way um, of engaging um, a broader audience. Um, and then third, and I'm not really like an expert on, on any of these whatsoever, <laughs> but it's just kind of what I see. But like, you know, um, science communication through, I guess, social media platforms such as Facebook and Instagram and specifically Twitter. Um, there's definitely been, you know, scientists both in academia and outside academia who kind of develop these platforms and, you know, kind of tweet, you know, every day to every week. Um, I went to grad school with a um, wonderful person and scientist who kind of does this like Twitter game called Spot That Lizard, which is really cool. But, but like, you know, they kind of tell like, you know, inform the public about lizard facts. And then they're like, hey, try to, here's a picture of you trying to find the lizards. That's that's interesting thing, too, about that's brilliant. That's actually so two things that you hit on that I'm pursuing right now is one, the social media use within the landscape design industry. I do think that we're very limited, but I love the idea that like game, you know, it's like promote engagement. It's not just, okay, we have an Instagram or we have a Twitter or we have a Facebook page. It's about that engagement, which I think is so cool. Cause you're right. It's a tool for communication, not just marketing it's actual outreach and I think that's underutilized in our field um and then also you talked about that crossing of like in your case using science and then you know like the arts in order to communicate something and I'm going to interview I think you met Amanda um my friend from high school uh she's a she's a poet and a English teacher and so she's and a writer so I'm interviewing her with the same thing about like using that inspiration that you can get from, in my case, landscape to inform your art. Um, So I think that's really awesome. So that collaboration topic, and I wanna know who have you collaborated with? And then specifically, have you ever collaborated with a designer or artist or landscape, anything with your research? Yeah, Um, (laughs) you know, kind of going back to like, this public engagement program that gets people out into their local streams and rivers. And they're kind of, once again, collecting this like baseline data. Um, You know, it's chemical and bacteria tests that are pretty easy. Um, You know, we kind of teach them how to do this and then they go out and, you know, just go ahead and, you know, sample every month. Um, And two, where I think this, where it kind of connects to landscape architecture is, you know, different like parks use, um, this program, um, you know, it's kind of this public education program. And so definitely they reach out to us and are like, Hey, I think, you know, you know, to have healthy parks, you need to have good water and to have good water, you need kind of that like healthy plant community. So I think there's like kind of that, you know, both can benefit from each other, um, in regards to, I guess, landscape architecture, or I guess that it also, that's like the field of like planning. It's so, there's so mm-hmm. many fields out there. Yeah, right. We uh, have so much potential to overlap. Like I could totally see a position in landscape architecture where you are pretty much directly working with aquatic ecologists to implement the the findings, right? So you're like, yeah, we know that better plant communities will increase the health of a stream. So I need to design then that said community to make that happen. So I just see that happen like as a possibility, but I just don't know if it actually happens. So we're aware that there are consulting firms that do this job specifically. However, what we're talking about is that ability to work side by side for a project in its entirety, not just 
using bits and pieces of information? Um, and could we do that more consistently across the board and have this high level of collaboration to ensure ecological processes are protected? Yeah, I think that's like a great question. Does it actually happen? And two, like, I mean, it's, I think, big in both of our worlds that we know that um, both with like aquatic species and also, you know, plant species that can live in the riparian zones, um, if they're introduced um, or non-native um, or invasive, that can have a lot of huge issues in regards to um, the integrity of the ecosystem. So it's, it's interesting too about, you know, I, I feel like y'all are aware that like this plant, you know, is not from here and like, you know, not to incorporate it into the plan. Um, and two with like, I think that goes for us as well. And sometimes too, like we don't even know, you know, does that non-native plant have an impact? If so, you know, I think that's the thing that some scientists are trying to figure out or aquatic ecologists. Like um, I, I remember back to our early days in undergrad when we would go to uh, this conference, you know, Meek, um, they were, they were, I still wear the of, shirt like twice a week. <laughs> oh yeah. You, you have to wrap, you have to wrap. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, um, it's about Amur or Amur honeysuckle. Um, and I remember, um, professors down it in Dayton, I think that's, I forget where the first year was. Um, but yeah, they looked at kind of like, because once again, you know, those, you know, that leaf litter that falls into the stream drives that ecosystem, stream ecosystem in, in different parts of the U.S. And so this actually, you know, I'm not sure if the inverts are really, you know, eating up on this, uh, you know, invasive plant. And so let's, let's find it out. And, and so they like tested it. I don't remember what their findings were, but I, I think that's a thing too, where what are the research questions that are driven by, I guess, people who are implementing or kind of managing these riparian zones? Yeah, like I feel like it could fuel like other research as long as well as like once those findings, like you were saying, once those findings are figured out, it could be relayed back to those landscape architects and those, those planning firms um, to kind of, you know, plan accordingly. So Yeah, I, I think it would be great because if you had that high level of uh, collaboration for the study and the implementation, right, like running both at the same time could be very fascinating and it maybe it opens up the door to do it in more public places right so it's not just reserved so say it is a public park we can say like well if we're making this aesthetically more pleasing but we're also trying to test if this plant is or is not beneficial then you could do that at the same time because you know that you have the design principles to make it all safe for the public to engage and then you also have the scientific actual studies that could be happening but i think it's really interesting too because we're we use a lot of the same language because we work so much with water yeah and that's why i was like why don't i ask zach if you could give us a little us the audience a little rundown of one cycle of like plant and water systems that you think would be an easy concept like you talked about that leaf litter right becoming food and so like that's a way that it links us all together i think that would be interesting for you to just give a quick spiel about so the audience can see how interconnected and how important it is to work together. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so there's definitely a lot of uh, a lot of studies that showed, I guess, this connection between the terrestrial and aquatic ecosystems, um, specifically with like streams and kind of that quote riparian area. And it's interesting because I had this like, awesome diagram that shows like you know the invertebrates in the stream and the fish and then it shows that they kind of like this diagram that shows them like popping out um but you know because those inverts are kind of there for a little bit doing their life cycle but then eventually they're going to hatch and we know some of these species off the top of heads like we know dragonflies that's like a very common one that we could visualize of like yeah dragonflies damselflies they start their life cycle in streams rivers, other water, other bodies of water. And, you know, they're there for a bit, you know, things eat them in the water, such as fish, but then they hatch eventually. And then they emerge from um, the water. And, you know, there's a lot of different, uh, you know, organism species that, you know, eat them. And that could be simple as spiders, it could be bats, birds, lizards, um, you know, all of them kind of 
use that, you know, insects from the stream um, or inverts from the stream to, I guess, kind of run their life cycle. And it, it kind of is the reverse of that where, um, you know, you have that leaf litter from, you know, deciduous trees that kind of fall and that kind of goes into the stream. And then those inverts, once again, they're, they're in their larval stages kind of munch on that. Um, and that's what kind of makes them grow and fuels them. So it's kind of that cycle. Yeah. yeah. Could you explain, I just want to in your voice, I could also do it separately, but yeah. could you explain a leaf pack? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like a leaf pack is, you know, just kind of a congregation of, you know, that leaf litter. So stuff that falls into the stream, it kind of gets bunched up, kind of usually kind of gets, you know, bunched up due to like, you know, rocks, um, you know, kind of riffle, um, you know, habitat. So where that water runs um you could see it bubbling and stuff um you kind of see them in the fall usually but yeah they kind of it's just like a gathering of leaves and within those leaves if you actually pick it up um over time it's going to break down and if you pick it up out of the water and put it into a bin um full of water you could see things moving around in there because those little little insects or insect larva is actually eating that leaf litter so you could actually see you know if you visit a spot every every week in the fall and go back to it, you could see that leaf litter being broken down over time. Um, and I mean, there's other ways too. I mean, I think the, um, I think there's like examples of the salmon forest in, you know, the Pacific Northwest. Um, in Please Alaska. explain that. That's amazing. Yeah, do that. <laughs> I mean, I'll try my best, but yeah, basically, um, you know, the, <laughs> you know, salmon have this life cycle where, you know, they kind of emerge from these freshwater streams and then they run, like make this huge migration to the sea. And then in the sea, they kind of get, you know, bigger over time by, you know, eating whatever's available. And then they're going to make their last run back to their initial breeding ground or where they hatch from and they're going to reproduce there and then die. When they die, um, <laughs> Things such as wool, like creatures such as wolves and bears, take them out um, of the water and eat them. And and two were that you know not they don't eat them all, um, but if they're you know picking some out and then you know they eat kind of half the salmon, that the rest of that salmon is kind of being used to you know probably fertilize the soil. I mean, it's just crazy that you know not only you know certain you know I quote predators rely on you know insects or fish coming from the stream, but also those plants in, in soil um, that nurture the plants rely on that kind of exchange of nutrients over time as well. Awesome. Yeah, that's exactly what I think we need to understand about how impactful each of our dis like design decisions make. So for you studying, I know you said like aquatic, and I know we started off in streams, right, like yeah. together in our lab, but yeah. What I have found a lot in landscape architecture, because we deal a lot with irrigation one, but then also just mitigating water flows in general, and then understanding hydrologic movement. We also understand the cycles, you know, but it's a lot about the movement and through these spaces that we're designing. So, you know, a lot of times we have to sheet water away or we have to make sure there's drainage and things like that. I don't know if we quite understand the impact on these smaller waterways. So like, you know, we create a lot of canals. We, you know, bulkhead a lot of these places. And I'm just wondering if you have seen any design features that you could see like a direct impact. It, it could be small, you know, it doesn't have to be like a big scale thing but if you saw like you noticed that i don't know like a gate got too close to like a riverbed and then like eroded or something like that you know those kinds of things matter because we talk about erosion a lot in our field and i don't think people quite understand the impacts of erosion aquatically not just terrestrially yeah I, it's it's interesting too because it goes back into you know you could create you know the biggest buffer known to mankind um, <laughs> to block the erosion or sediment runoff um, when you have heavy rain events. Um, but it's interesting. I just think there's there's such a push for just develop and build more. Um, and, and two, you know, they do, you know, for most, I, in my understanding, 
they have to put up, um, you know, best man- management practices. They have mm-hmm. to put up silt fences. You know, you can't block out all the silt from entering into a stream. And, and that's the thing too. And it, it's so sad to see it here in South Carolina where, you know, these streams used to run um, and they still run clear, but they used to be traditionally rocky bottom streams and they just mm-hmm. get filled in with sediment so much over time. And it just, you know, hurts the aquatic life, you know, especially freshwater mussels, they rely on that clear, um, clean water. And, you know, if to us, it looks clear, but in reality, there might be um, that suspended sediment. And for them, it kind of clogs them up. Um, they're not able to, you know, reproduce or do any other life functions. And so that's definitely been an issue over time is water quality, um, both through sedimentation and through other contaminants kind of allow the freshwater mussels in the United States to like kind of crash. Um, you know, th- there's a lot of efforts being done to, I guess, help them or reintroduce them back, um, depending on which species. But yeah, I think that's thing of thinking about, I guess, stormwater runoff um, and what it, you know, and it's interesting, I had to do a presentation this week about green stormwater infrastructure, which mm. incorporates, um, you know, a lot of, um, you know, green roofs, um, rain gardens, um, bioswales with native plantings. Um, so yeah, it, it's interesting that it, it connected back of like, you know, if we want to protect our streams, we got to do stuff on the land first. And so, yeah, I think thinking about, um, and, and that's the thing too, it's like, what projects are we already doing where we can incorporate this green stormwater infrastructure, which once again, it captures this rainwater and reduces stormwater runoff. Um, therefore, you're not overloading a system because, you know, these systems do have a natural flow regime and each flow regime is going to look different depending where you're at in the United States and globally. Um, but I think, you know, what is happening both due to um, direct human impacts as well as indirect human impacts such as climate change, um, which means, you know, either more frequent flooding in wet places or more stream drying in drier places, um, you know, that's definitely making aquatic life kind of trying to adjust but not all of them are adjusting well because they're not evolved (laughs) um to see that shift in their in that flow regime change Mm -hmm. um but i think too you know what can we do um directly to i guess reduce that manipulation of the flow regime yeah yeah Uh, i think that because stormwater runoff is a huge topic um in landscape architecture of course but then also this incorporation of green infrastructure and then trying to see how many different forms it can take on and then measuring the you know gallons per like minute to it you know trying to understand how much we can help but I think uh yeah, I am glad that that does like relate because we talk about it a lot and it is just a fight to get those things implemented. And it always comes down to money. <laughs> you know, it's like, how much does this cost? How much does it cost to maintain? And so I think it's very interesting. And we can have a little bit of a, like a cultural discussion too. Cause I think like, say if on the street we had, you know, stormwater retention ponds, like little ponds, but could also be viewed somewhat as like vernal pools, like that that should be okay, like habitat wise, but you know, culturally people don't want to see like standing water in places or a place would look unkempt or un, you know, just yeah, unkempt or messy. And that's viewed as bad. And I'm just like, oh, that really sucks because it's so important for this mess to happen in these natural areas, but in the places that we design, which tend to be, or can be urban. And yeah, I just think like, people are so scared of what nature actually looks like. So when we talk about stormwater runoff, the reason they're so highly designed is so that they fit the aesthetic of like a city, you know? And I I think it's interesting. Yeah, I definitely think it comes down to uh, cost and that's that's unfortunate part of it. And yeah, definitely like going back to that cultural thing about the aesthetic. I mean, and it's, 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 it's weird because I think like, you know, um, because there's some, I go to a park every day for my daily walk. Um, and there's two storm, um, stormwater retention ponds. Um, and like, it's interesting because it's, is it naturally, is it like, you know, what was this, you know, hundred to 200 years ago when no one was living there? Um, 
you know, was there, I guess, wetlands near the, um, or on the floodplain or, you know, I'm not sure, but like, it's, it does provide, you know, I hear frogs that I would usually not hear if they weren't there. Um, there's like great blue herons. Um, there's like, like ducks and geese. And I think we actually saw otter one day <laughs> in a storm retention pond, um, which was wild. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it is interesting because it does, it could technically provide, um, I guess, wildlife habitat. Um, mm-hmm. But then you get the, the other side of that where, yeah, some people are like, well, you know, these geese are a nuisance or, right, right. you know, these frogs really are very loud at night. Um, <laughs> <laughs> got a whole chorus going on. <laughs> exactly. But it, it's interesting too. I mean, it, going back to like, you know, how do we measure, you know, I think this goes back to kind of what we're thinking with Eagle Creek um, restoration project with, um, you know, at Hiram College. But, you know, there's some clear goals for this restoration project, such as decreasing um, flooding in downtown Garrettsville. But, you know, that can't always be measured um, over a certain time. And so that's, again, why we use, you know, the invertebrate community um, or, you know, those other chemical parameters such as dissolved oxygen or pH over a time scale to see, well, this is how it's changing. And, you know, it's shifting towards from this, you know, baseline that was initially probably okay to better Then hopefully it's kind of doing that other bigger goal or job of reducing flooding downstream, you know, but it's interesting that sometimes we have these goals or objectives and then how do we measure it? Sometimes our are hard to uh, align per se. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. This is all about showing exactly how impactful we are to each other, like our fields are to each other. So is there a topic that you're really excited about within your industry? And like, is there something that you're like, people should know about this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's a very, it's already a hot topic. Um, <laughs> well, I got a couple, but I think, um, I think microplastics, and I know that's like, yeah. Yeah, it's just, I mean, everyone knows about it because of like marine systems, but um, yeah, the, like the freshwater ecosystem is kind of already seeing impacts and it's, you know, I pulled up a paper that I cited once or twice in like a outreach uh, piece in mm-hmm. the local newspaper, but basically um, in lab experiments, they have shown um, that caddisflies, which are this, you know, type of insect. I don't love, like, love a caddisfly. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah. Caddis, yeah. Caddisfly, they build these cases out of, you know, sticks and, and little gravel and sand and kind of build it around them. So, you know, what they did in this experiment is they put them in tanks um, with just natural, um, you know, sticks, gravel, etc. And then they, you know, also introduced, you know, microplastics or different types of uh, plastics that were small enough for them to incorporate it into uh, their cases. And what they saw is that these cases were less stable and that means they're more likely to be, you know, eaten in the stream. And so that's the thing, if, if all of them are going to get eaten up in the stream and they're not going to emerge, that's going to, you know, the bats, the birds, lizards, the spiders, anything on the terrestrial that ate them in, initially are going to lose out. Um, so I think that's an interesting thing. Um, I, I think that stays very cool <laughs> um, <laughs> just for existing um and just like you know like <laughs> we had this question like and this is what we did um but I think too we're like going up another level is that we see you know a lot of stream cleanups um and I I've done a couple of stream cleanups where you know you get everyone and you kind of go out pick up you know the, the debris because you know that macro plastic you know those polar cups those plastic bottles um, they're going to just get broken down over time into smaller microplastics. Um, and so my, my, what I'm wondering is like, you know, does, you know, this actually have an impact? You know, it's, it's like that whole question, like, should we even recycle? But like, for me, I'm like, mm-hmm. are we just dumping a bunch of money into these local river cleanups, um, you know, that people do maybe once or twice a year, they do it, they feel good. Um, which is great, you know, it gets people out, gets people involved and understand their waterways, but does it actually have an impact? Or should we actually invest, and I've seen a couple of these, you know, infrastructure that kind of collects that macro plastic, you know, um, there's a couple of them out there. I forget the names off the top of my head, 
but like, yeah, like, has anyone done a follow-up study before and after, you know, a stream cleanup has been implemented or um, this infrastructure that kind of collects that macroplastic has been implemented? I think that'd be really cool to just look at um, because, yeah, I think going back to that, that thing about money, it's like, well, you know, if, it, if we're putting money into this and if it's actually not really doing anything, should we divert those funds to do something else? Right. You know? And yeah. then, and then that becomes a, a way to tie back into that cultural aspect where it's like, Hey, it's an, is this actually just an awareness piece? Also, there's this good um, documentary called, I think river webs and it is kind of, um, wait, let me look. Yeah. River webs is a documentary, but basically um, it was a, in Japan, but basically started this project to kind of look at the links between streams and, and forest or um, kind of that terrestrial ecosystem. But what he did was he kind of took like these, these like kind of a greenhouse and put it over the stream. So there is that block between, you know, the terrestrial ecosystem and the stream ecosystem. Um, yeah, it's like this very cool project that I think started in the late 80s and got carried on um, till probably the early 2000s, mid 2000s, but, you know, anyone's interested about looking more or, you know, who, who likes watching documentaries, um, River Webs is like a really cool, I guess, like showing science um, and also like this, you know, connection between the rivers and streams and like that terrestrial ecosystem. So I wanted to mention that I did that. I did a little like research earlier today. I, I knew about it, but I forgot the name of it. So I had to look it up quickly. Um, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So yeah, it's definitely cool to see that there are those connections, but yeah. Um, going back to microplastics, I, I do think that's a, are we making an actual impact by doing this? Um, or is it more just engagement? Like you were saying, um, and two, it's like, well, then what, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's the thing too, where like, we like ban plastic straws and, and like, you know, but there's other things that are made of plastic. You know, it's like, you know, and, and I always think about, is it really on the individual or is it more of the societal thing of like, should, you know, companies not just make plastic things in plastic anymore? Should we just shift that? Um, but that's like a way, I mean, that goes to like what I'm something passionate about and kind of goes to that bigger scale of like, how do we just change the system? <laughs> Every one of these conversations I have always end up with, let's burn it down, start yeah. over is like... <laughs> That's just how it goes when you start thinking about it because you're like, well, um, but I think this is an important part, right? Like the conversation of saying like, not to be defeatist, but you should be aware that the acts that you're doing to, you know, better the ecosystem and make the planet healthier may not actually be doing that. And that's what we need to be finding out. It's not to say like, you're wrong or you're not doing anything, but it's that we genuinely don't know. Because yeah. there aren't those studies and we kind of are just hoping for the best. And I do wonder if in landscape, we kind of do the same thing, right? Like you talked about the best management practices. Awesome. Great. Because it's a way to regulate it. It's something that shows we are trying to do something, especially when we're building these projects, but you can't capture everything. You can't monitor everything. So what, so are those best management practices how much are they actually helping and can we call them best anymore? And like, yeah, like, is that extra step necessary now? I, I just think that there's a lot of things we've done, especially in the built environment as an industry that because of money and regulations that we've left a uh, old standard and we haven't updated that along with the like studies that your industry is doing. <laughs> Yeah. And, and that's, that's a good point about best management practices and, you know, why are we doing this still today in 2021, you know, um, especially that there isn't much information on it. And two, I think like, I mean, this is the interesting thing that does link our, our fields or disciplines together is that both had good intentions on doing stuff. Um, and my main thought is introducing a certain species, whether it's a, mm -hmm. a plant or a fish uh, um, and then like <laughs> years later or or for for water dams and then years later they're like oh yeah actually this was a bad idea 
Um, because I know like for, you know, probably landscape architecture, there was probably like, oh, well, we want to, we want to use these different, uh, species of vegetation from, yeah. you know, that's not local. Um, and then over time they're like, oh, well, now they're invasive. Um, and we know that, you know, yeah. um, if you have a monoculture of a certain invasive plant, that's going to just not be good for anyone. Um, same thing with like, not only dams, <laughs> um, but also, um, the U S like way back in the day was like, let's introduce carp and brown trout into our water. So both of them yeah. are actually from Europe. And I think there was this cultural aspect that people are like, well, I want something that, you know, is from where I was from. And, and so, you know, both of them are from Europe. And so they introduced them and we know that, that they <laughs> can have ecological impacts. I was going to um, say that they didn't work out so great. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard too, because it's like, well, you know, for, if I'm going kind of more, not really research heavy, but more management heavy, especially thinking about fish, it's like, well, let's kind of manage this fishery. Well, is the fishery actually species that were naturally occurring there or were they introduced? I mean, that's a huge thing from where we're from in Ohio. There's a huge um, st steelhead uh, trout fishery um, in, in, the, in Lake Erie um, in a couple of the rivers that go into Lake Erie. Um, and that's the thing too, that naturally they were not there, um, but someone thought it was a good, good idea and they're like, let's keep it up. And it's just a put and take fishery for people to recreate. And also if you do want to consume the fish, it's there, but it's also like, it's just like an interesting thought of like, you know, it's like a, are we just doing this because it's a tradition or like, I mean, like, because it's like the norm now. Um, and like, yeah, exactly know. what's accessible. And then, yeah, because if the outreach doesn't continue, not a lot of people understand that it wasn't from here, right? Like, you know, my family's gone steelhead fishing for ever, right? Were they here? No, that's not the question you asked. It's that we've been steelhead fishing for generations. <laughs> is that, yeah. That's really what it comes down to, because that's what's more valued. And I do think um, access has a lot to do with it, right? Where it's like, okay, if you want to fish and have good fishing, because that's the tradition that you're used to, there's an industry in making that fishing more accessible by putting it in more places. And then you have that, you know? Uh, so once again, good intentions. Yeah. And I think too, with the good intentions is like, you know, you, you want happy anglers because they're going to then purchase license and that funds kind of, that's how the model of, you know, conservation is for the state levels, not all. Um, and there's also some other, you know, um, statues and um, other like ways to to fund or those, you know, um, you know, state agencies. But it's interesting, too, because it's like, you know, happy anglers are going to keep, you know, pur purchasing license. And, you know, it's just, it's just interesting. It's like, I'm like, yeah. well, you know, is, 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 is this, I mean, it's status quo, but is it actually good? You know, I don't know. I, <laughs> I feel that way strongly about Bradford pears in pear trees in landscape in the urban environment because it's like this tree does fairly well in urban environments and they're pretty cheap and you know we have heat island effect that's really not good so we have a stronger canopy that's great so what do we do we planted so many pear trees and then you end up having like a monoculture and these trees aren't as strong as we thought they would be because we didn't think about it 50 years from now right like but they're there and they're flowering and people like that they can see them flowering maybe not the way they smell but <laughs> you see like <laughs> that yes that enthusiasm that comes for that greater picture helps with the money side and then also getting people engaged but is it good for the ecology and the ecosystems can't measure that right now right <laughs> can't yeah and also this is gonna be hilarious I have to be honest, I sold a bunch of those trees when I was in high school, when I worked at a garden center, because, <laughs> because people are like, I want a flowering tree that's yep. cheap. And I'm yep. like, well, you know, for 20 bucks, you could get this, the, the pear, um, when like red buds run 40, like, 
Yep. That's the thing where I I so, I pushed so many of those. Um, and I was just like a high schooler. I was just like, I don't know, it's 20 bucks, you mm-hmm. know, and you know, here you go. And and I just sold a bunch of them. And now it's like a thing for a lot of people and or like, you know, a lot of um, you know, organizations and agencies are more aware that, you know, they're not good. Um, but yeah, it's it's wild. That's a great example. <laughs> That's funny. It's all it's all your fault, Zach. Obviously, you were yeah. so good, so yeah, good. Sold too, many, sold, sold too many trees. <laughs> now look at us. Yeah, I think yeah. um you're right, especially because um with like native anything almost almost is so expensive. Just yeah, the cost to diversify and create a biodiverse like landscape is extreme, and that's very interesting. And I think to know that impact of like you want a flowering tree okay you just like pair and if they just so happen to live by water or anywhere within like a watershed that that has that impact if you sold 200 of these zach then you have all of that you know impact that we'll probably be feeling you know in like a decade or so within that stream who knows yeah yeah <laughs> all good all good but yeah it's yeah, it's it's so interesting what systems, I guess, prioritize on um, what is important or what ha- should have value. And, and I think about that, too, especially with, you know, my, my grad research was a lot about native fish in Arizona. And most of these species, you know, don't have any recreational purposes. You know, they don't, you don't really fish for them. Um, but, you know, they should be cared for and managed because they just exist. And I mean, it's, it's interesting because I do see this a lot in regards to engagement and um, fish Twitter, which exists. It's really great. Um, but like that there's this push by scientists that like are like, hey, these non-native game are these native game, blah, blah, these native non-game fish species are actually very important to the ecosystem. They're, they've been a part of the ecosystem for, you know, long time and they serve an ecological role and that's the thing too um you know there's this great scientist down in louisiana named dr solomon david who studies gar um and they're these kind of you know prehistoric they look like dinos but they're not dinos but they've been around since the dinos um they could get very big um especially um different species like the alligator gar um but you know in regards to regulations you could just slaughter them and not like you could take as many as you want but when it comes to non-native game fish species there's a limit or or on that but it's just so weird that you know this these trash fish or rough fish is what the public calls them Mm -hmm. are just like so like villainized and i feel like they're like you know they're like the like those fish species um regardless of you know what they are but they're just like the sharks of freshwater ecosystems like they just shouldn't exist. And I'm like, no, they should. Um, and I, I give props to him because he's really definitely like pushed people to be like, yeah, Gar are really cool and they're really awesome. And th- I mean, there's so many facts about Gar, and you're just like, this, this is like an amazing species. Um, yeah, it's just going back to that bigger thing about like what we value and what we um, care about um, and why. And I think it's, yeah. you know, what the system's telling us, but also just like over time, it's what our what is the norm, um, the cultural norm? Yeah. I wonder, um, do you see, I mean, we're both relatively young, especially young within our own respective p- professions, but do you see uh, cultural shifts happening? I feel like, for example, in the age of COVID, landscape architecture kind of thrived because people were valuing the need for these outdoor spaces so that they could be safely socially distant and like learning how to organize those outdoor spaces right with use of those igloos or separating and putting tables out and utilizing streets like in that way there is a lot of awareness and value put on outdoor spaces which is great for our industry but I'm wondering if you have experienced or seen any sort of cultural shifts within your industry the answer could be no yeah it's hard to tell but i do think yeah people who are really studying these uh organisms or these you know ecosystems and truly kind of know them 
and our the experts um, are definitely speaking out more. And that does give me hope um, because I, you know, it's, we are living, we are living in a sad age where, you know, people are not trusting a lot of things. They're not trusting the experts. They're not trusting medicine. They're not trusting educators. They're not trusting, you know, scientists. Um, and it, it's really upsetting, but I think there might be a silver lining. Um, you know, I think people are definitely, um, you know, it goes back to how, how are we doing it? And I think it's, you know, I think people are like, Hey, I'm, you know, waving their hands. I'm here. Um, and, or like, you know, I'm going to collaborate with, you know, this poet or this visual artist to get the message out that these things are here and they exist or that this is an issue. And, and I'm, that does give me some hope. It's just like, there's so much, um, out there, like so many issues, but, um, I know, I think I, I go back to the saying, it's like, it's like a two-edged sword. I don't know if it's an actual saying, I kind of paraphrase this, but, um, some mentor told me this saying about like, you're in any field you kind of understand the ins and outs and kind of the inherent issues that are kind of that could be kind of broadcast um by the system um or just like the standard um but like also the other half of the sword or coin um i don't want to use a sword but coin <laughs> um is that you know like you yourself are working to improve it and making it better as well as you know so many other people um, that are in it and make it better. And I think that's the thing too, where, you know, am I feeling hopeful with the, just the general public somewhat? Um, I am feeling more hopeful with the professionals, you know, seeing, you know, these societies speak up more about the priorities of climate change and also the importance of having, you know, diversity in the profession. Um, that's huge, very huge, because it's not always been that way and it's been very sad and there's been a lot of repercussions of that and so it's good that i'm seeing these professional societies stepping up and actually saying not only we're just saying something because it's easy to say something but actually you know putting initiate initiatives forth um to improve i guess that standard and and maybe that's the way to do it you know start with the professional societies or like your that those professional silos maybe and then you know maybe the next step is just public engagement but maybe that next that might be like you know that cross collaboration um with different disciplines in the field i don't know but i think, I think it is i think you're right i think you're you, you know i've been having this conversation with different people in my life about that like when you plan out your life or your goals right like so even you can apply that to a profession you have an idea of what the end goal is and then working backwards from that is extremely beneficial because it also makes you face what those steps are. Maybe it means then collaborating with other people to get more knowledge. Because I think at the root of it, it's knowledge is power, right? So instead of staying insular with in your own industry to look at the same information that everyone's looking at, which is great because it fortifies and reinforces what you know, but it doesn't share that information with a wider audience and I think that's exactly why that collaboration cross-disciplinarily has to happen like I wouldn't naturally think to talk about leaf packs to convey the impact of plantings to ecological systems but that comes out in the discussion that maybe that resonates with people differently and now all of a sudden you have two disciplines speaking the same language which I think is so important yeah and I definitely think too, where there's just so much jargon in everyone's like oh, field and God, acronyms. I hate it, Zach. I hate jargon. <laughs> acronyms and and um, yeah. yeah, it's just like you know, there's like, do you know ABC? And it's like, do you know um, XYZ? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, because if you know, for us who are young in the professions, <laughs> and we're like you know, relocating or like starting it, you know, it, yeah. it's just like, there's always something like, it's just like, just give me the book that just tells me all of them right away, what to use, what to say, and we can move on. Um, and I think that's the, you know, going back to like engaging the public. I think there is more ways what's being done. You know, people are still writing peer reviewed journal articles. I mean, I'm like guilty of that. Like I, I had a couple come out this year um, but it's also like, 
not like I know who's going to be reading them. <laughs> right. and, like, and I sent them to my family and they're like, wow, this is a lot of math. Like that was like the first thing. And I'm like, I'm like, and they're like, wow, the methods. I'm like, no, I'm like, no, you don't have to read the methods. Only if you're really interested, you go like, like I'm even like that. Like I always do like mm -hmm. abstract intro methods. I skim. How invested you are in that paper. And then you're like, what's, where's the discussion and the results? That's what I really, that's the, you know, that's where I'm looking at. But like, sometimes I, I'm a sucker for methods. How, you know, how do I get my like family to be like, I mean, and they're proud and they, they, you know, they, they care and they you know, but well, this impacts like everyone, you know, it's not just, you know, this small, you know, group of people or this small group of fish. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like, how do we go about that? And it's cool that, you know, people are collaborating more with, uh, with, uh, artists, um, you know, they're offering more graphical abstracts, which are, you know, could be like little diagrams or I say cartoons. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and it just shows the kind of the abstract of the paper in like a, either just a one shot image or kind of a, you know, before and after, um, and one of the papers I co-authored on had one and it's super cool because it's like, you can look at it, understand the paper. Like you don't have to dive deep unless you want to. Um, but yeah, I think those hopefully will become more common. In landscape, when we do our like design boards, we do yeah. so many like infographics as a way to also exactly explain this concept and these ideas clearly and simply because to convey the information. So you need a lot of the graphics to speak for you and not everyone wants to read or is willing to. So graphics are just easier. Yeah, and I think like, I mean, once again, if we're changing how these professional um, groups, society settings are, and I think like then opening the doors. And I, I've seen that before where there, I think it was a more regional conference, but they invited, like, I think it was like a free day for people of the public. And it was up in Alaska, which is very important because it's a fisheries conference and a lot of people depend on fisheries up there. Um, but like, yeah, like, who are we inviting to these? Because they're also just like super costly. And it's like, yeah. how can we make it better? Um, and I, yeah, and I think that's the thing too. Scientists are, push more to do not just like peer-reviewed journal articles but like you know do outreach outreach pieces and that could be your local newspaper or you know a TED talk or a podcast you know like there's so many different ways to talk about it and then like yeah being on Twitter but yeah I think I would love to see more collaboration because I even think between our two professions right like waterways and stormwater like management are just these key components in landscape architecture that we talk about almost every day if not every day like that knowing any bit of information that you have to say right like if it was in that region like even if like me reaching out to a regional expert like that would be cool because then it maybe informs my design that much more like to make it beneficial right like to sub out certain species to then promote and ask nurseries to grow that species right like th those are the kind of connectors that I hope to make to get things happening on a bigger scale and who knows like if that's going to happen but this has been great and so I really I appreciate it yeah yeah I'm curious about yeah like for like stormwater is just very interesting because it's something I'm not you know I'm something I've gotten more into because it's like I'm you know aquatic ecology but also water quality now it's all interconnected but it's like yeah this like the whole concept of like ms4s like municipal separate stormwater sewer systems and like a lot of you know a lot of like ms4s and people in those positions that do stuff with stormwater management or regulations and stuff are like engineers so yeah it's like how do we loop engineers more because that's like if we just don't know much about a field um you know i, I assume they have professional societies um you know, yeah, but absolutely, yeah. you know, and they do have these professionals, but because we're not intermingling, like I've worked with engineers before, right? I, I, but I haven't collaborated with engineers before, right? Like I haven't had it where we're informing each other's designs. It's usually like, or, yeah, that I'm working within the parameters that an engineer has set, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, so, I mean, some people would probably define that as collaborating, but I wouldn't. 
you know, like, I feel like there's a give and take <laughs> that needs to happen. Yeah, definitely a give and take. There definitely needs to be, you know, we need to hear everyone's voice, um, you know, more often in regards to planning um, and implementing certain projects. Um, yeah, I've, I think about this a lot because, you know, I definitely shifted, you know, a lot of my former research was just kind of like bigger land, you know, like more federal land, public land. Now I'm doing more like more urban, more city environments. And um, I think it's interesting too, because like, you know, we're right now we're going through this very interesting phase about putting more money towards, I guess, infrastructure. Like, I, I don't know what to say, but like parks and green spaces, beautification. But I think there's like a, there's another side to that. And that's like, I've seen like the phrase green gentrification and stuff. And mm -hmm. yeah, there's a, there's actually a, a I mean, it's a, I think great article in the sense that it really shows the complexities and um, it's also just like good reporting. But, you know, recently there's this huge plan going on in Los Angeles for the, um, the river there. And in the master plan, it's pretty much like going to go over this revitalization, um, but it's not accounting for the houseless people there. And there's, I think, 9,000 people that live along the river. And yeah. none, like they, the people who were behind the plan had, um, you know, different, I guess they had like a environmental justice or social justice committee or part of the plan, but like no one who was an advocate or houseless person themselves were a part of any planning. So it's just like so weird. It goes back to, you know, because ecology, if we think about it, is this relationship between living things including us humans and their physical environment. But like, just going back to like, we are ecology, you know, it's like, everyone's like, oh, nature's all, all far away. I'm like, no, nature is literally out your front door uh, yeah. or in your house. It's, I was going to say like, like, literally in your home, you are, this. <laughs> you go to the yeah. bathroom, ecology, you eat some yeah. food, ecology. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We are, the, we have a microbiome, you know, but it, it's just like wild that, there's, you know, 9,000 people who live along this river. A thousand of them actually depend on the river for a subsistence. So they actually fish it. Um, in this article, they reported that number. And it's like, there's nothing, it's like, so they're a part of this, you know, river ecology and the system, but they're not accounted for in the plan. And it's like, oh, and I, and that's where I'm like, wanting to grow more as an individual and like also a professional is just like advocate for those who've been left out in the past um because if they're not being advocated for they're probably going to be still left out and so i just like you know it's just like i think it's great that we're continuing to do green spaces and beautification but also i think we need to realize you know who's missing out or who's being impacted by it um yeah. but yeah it was just it, it was it was you know, it's great reporting, but it was very sad because it's just like, it just kind of ended and like, oh, that's, you know, yeah. Yeah, because that's where it is now. Once again, without that collaboration, then you're left with something very flat, in my opinion, physically, like in real life, because it's a drawing, but also yeah. flat as far as concept, because in a lot of these plans, there aren't the notes or messaging in the images and the graphics to say like we're trying to account for invertebrates and the birds and the people like you do see it in in like I think grad school particularly right you, people put the images of like birds and all the stuff but to showcase a holistic narrative yeah everyone gets that is like important is it's really hard to do so that's why you don't see it but the idea that people are being left out of that narrative all the time, like yeah. all the time. And yeah. I think that's very fascinating. At the same time, are running the narrative. Like yeah. we're building this recreation area, but we're not talking about how people actually use the area. For sure. And it, I mean, it's interesting, like you were saying, there's all these different parts and, you know, when it comes down to it, there, those different parts are not included um, in this, you know, in the flat drawing at the end. Um, possibly in grad school, but not, you know, sometimes in real life. But like, it goes back to, I, you know, prior to this interview, I, 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 I'm not the best at listening to podcasts, but I do 
catch up on yours because you know I really I really like it um (laughs) yeah like I mean like I was actually I actually looked into landscape architecture at at Clemson because I could possibly go back to school through my Mm -hmm. position but um you know I was I'm like "Eh, I don't think it's now the right time but like yeah I think it's such a cool field because it combines you know so many different elements um I I, going back to the one possible podcast about myths um I thought that was very interesting because you know my fiance is a fiction you know writer you know what you know you might take elements of the landscape that is true but also what is that storytelling I think that's the whole thing it's like you know the landscape the environment the ecosystem whatever you want to say it is you gotta I guess agree across different fields what we're gonna call it um what jargon we want to pick it as i know i Um, I, that that's one of the reasons i do hate is because it does limit that collaboration like i speak your language because we have the same foundation of study right yeah that doesn't mean (laughs) that if we didn't i would understand what you're saying exactly but i think that's the thing going back it's like you know the landscape because this is a landscape nerd podcast so i want to use the correct word um (laughs) but the landscape has all these different stories if we you know break it down by you know the soil the plant community you know the you know what is the shape of the landscape that we're looking at on scale um you know what also lives there so the other biological community the you know the humans that interact with it you know all those have a story and I think that's the thing. There's so many stories being told. So how do we get all those stories incorporated into one big story? Um, because I think once again, stories matter. Um, mm-hmm. It's I think you know it's interesting because like stories, in a sense, can have a lesson. Like it's knowledge in a sense. Like you learn something from stories. You know, it's it's interesting. I, I might talk more about this later with uh, my fiance about like you know why do you write and like we go, we talk about this a lot about a lot of different things but like we need to tell these stories and obviously you can tell stories in many different ways whether that's doing a scientific study or whether that's doing like drawing drafting um you know a landscape plan like i don't is that is that what it's called yeah <laughs> okay i'll 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 not i'll try to not stick to the jargon you're but, fine <laughs> yeah but but that's the thing it's like how do we get everyone to tell this not the same story but combine these stories to then inform the future story right i think that's a, that's something that we are working through all the time in at least landscape because you're trying to pitch ideas that resonate with people while also trying to make the considerations and my theory is those very holistic plans, the ones that think about so many people and so many different organisms and then the connection of it all just isn't sexy. Like it's just not appealing and not everyone has the attention span for, and that's not a, that's not a dig. It's that is a fact. I think that's um, a hurdle to get through and that we can get through it. Like I imagine a studio where it's like same project, people all collaborate to make the same plan and then each person in the studio is telling a different story. And I think that would be really cool as a way to highlight how it benefits like all these different things. But um, that's hard, right? Collaboration's hard. I'm not gonna sit, sit here and be like, yeah. we just need to collaborate because it is hard. Jargon yeah. being one hurdle, but also just personalities and people and resources and access to the things that you are comfortable with. Yeah. Like you are in the field, right? Like you're in the field, you're doing outreach, you're doing like science with citizens, which is a, its own communication skill. Yeah. And then trying to like, I'm at a computer all day, even though yeah. like you think it would, maybe wouldn't be like, but I'm at a computer all day. I'm doing yeah. visions and I'm like detail oriented stuff. It's yeah. just different sets that you use every day. So for us to collaborate, this platform just so happens to be one. But even like you said, you had, this is on your phone, right? Like this yeah. is um, like, set up on a laptop and fancy like I have my microphone and stuff here so it's just saying that this collaboration's hard but we I think we have to do it like you said like that's the way that we're going to move forward to get messages of all kinds and all different stories out there it's vital yeah, yeah. because right now 
those messages i don't know i think they're being out there but i don't know if they're being received or yeah or like is it bounced off the same people right like yeah (laughs) oh my gosh yeah just talking to the same you know yeah preaching the same choir this was awesome this was really awesome um yeah thank you for inviting me do you want to uh drop your twitter yes yes um yeah so should i send this in an email uh, i could email after this i gotta find some <laughs> yeah, yeah you can absolutely send it in the email. But, but um, uh, i just meant like for a soundbite drop your drop your twitter like oh for yeah. a soundbite yeah yeah um yeah so my twitter is at z c nemic that's it first <laughs> initial middle initial last name because I'm published. <laughs> oh yeah, you're what right. Does that could, mean? I could actually look you up. Yeah. You've been published for a long time. Like Oh, yes, yeah. Like, <laughs> like your work has been published for near a decade. Yes, yeah. Uh <laughs> well, like I I just get like so imposter syndrome about it too because it's like, oh, if you don't publish, you're not a real scientist. I'm like, you are a scientist. Thank you again to Zach for coming on the podcast. And thank you so much for listening. If you like what you hear, please take a look at the website at www.thelandscapenerd.com. We have the show notes there. There's also a merch shop and there's links to the Patreon there. If you want to support further, check out the Instagram page at The Landscape Nerd. Also feel free to email me with your thoughts and questions at thelandscapenerd at gmail.com. If you have the Anchor app, there is a feature where you can send me a voice message directly. Like say you're listening to this episode and you're like, oh, hey, Macy, I thought of this and you want to tell me something and it goes straight to me. And I think that's cool. So thank you for listening. Keep nerding out and I will talk to you soon.